Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. Um, this is episode one of Slater Kinney. Um, if, if you're from the UK and that makes you think of EastEnders, just call it Slater Kinney in your head. You'll be absolutely fine. Um, okay, so we're, go- we're going straight towards the first album. But first of all, let's see who we still got. We've got Cherie. Hello, Cherie. Hello there. We've got Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Ben. Hi there. Uh, Fliss. Hello. Oh, yeah, Nick. Nick. I always forget yeah. Nick. And Nick. I'm, I'm here. <laughs> and me. I'm Ewan, as you know. Okay, so let's move on to the first album and let's try and get some, some scene setting. Um, so obviously we're in a world, in a world, where sort of grunge had exploded, uh, become a T-shirt, become a badge, sort of disappeared a bit, um, very male-orientated rock uh, sort of scene. Um, there had been some sort of... Uh, some movement of uh, uh, female punk bands, maybe sort of in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, the one I'm name-checking because I absolutely adore them was the Luna Chicks, who I think were dismissed as sort of fox core was the phrase I found while I was Googling. Um, how did Riot Girl as a movement start? Also, did the, ner- did the term Riot Girl come from those in the movement? Or was it something pushed on them like other labels that we've sort of mentioned in the past? I'm going to go straight to you, Sarah, because you wrote a book on the scene. So I'm hoping you know more than me. Um, how, what, what was happening musically and in the scene at that time? Okay, I'm going to throw down some Riot Girl 101 and then we can, you know, do a little cleanup afterward to kind of nuance the question of Lake Slater Kinney's relationship to Riot Girl because Slater Kinney itself couldn't have happened the way they happened without Riot Girl happening, but to call Slater Kinney itself a Riot Girl band is kind of complicated. And that's not actually like my own hair splitting. This like comes from the band members themselves. Like, uh, so, but before we get into any of that, I will be very, very happy to lay down some Riot Girl science for all of us. Riot Girl starts out in the summer of, wait, now I need to pick up my own book. You know, so I wrote this book, it came out in 2010. And like, it's like everything in my brain about Riot Girl like went out into the book and it's not in my head anymore. It's been completely externalized. Um, and so especially when it comes to years, sometimes I'm like, I'm just going to get this year wrong if I don't look at my very own book. That's the best plug for a book I've ever heard, by the way. <laughs> Please read the book. The it is my brain outside my body um, <laughs> up to 2010. Everything after that is in the book that I'm finishing now. All right. If, you're, if you want to talk about what Riot Girl is, you have to start in the summer of 1991 in Washington, D.C., um, where for the summer, the Olympia-based feminist punk band Bikini Kill and the bi-coastal Olympia-slash-Washington, D.C.-based feminist punk trio Bratmobile are spending the summer playing shows together, writing songs, and working to kind of kickstart a feminist punk community in D.C., all right. So this is a summer when members of Bikini Kill and Bratmobile start making a, um, a regular fanzine. At first, it's just like a single piece of paper folded up in, into quarters, and they title that Riot Girl with three R's in the girl. So the name comes from the folks. It's not imposed from outside from the beginning. Does it get then later on misapplied to various groups because somebody's yelling or somebody has an electric guitar? Absolutely, absolutely. But it's like there, it was like a particular like aesthetic and punk and um, political formation. Like people went to Riot Girl meetings. There were chapters. There were people who like really were this. And then there would be other people who would be called Riot Girl and they'd be like, you know, Riot Girl is a cool thing, but I like, 
I am a punk, I am a feminist, that's not exactly my deal. So to orient us, um, first of all, this scene, its heyday is basically like 91 to about like 95, 96. That's the real, like, there are definitely folks who will like consider themselves riot girls going forward from that, especially like younger folks, fans, people who get into the culture and identify with that. But as far as there being like riot girl conventions, riot girl meetings, um, a real like network of a sense of people who are like, we are on this sort of project together, building something together. That's 91 and 96. So as um, you, I've talked about Bikini Kill, I've talked about Bratmobile, um, keen minds will have noticed that Corin Tucker is not a member of either of those bands. Her band is the third riot girl band to come up out of the Olympia scene. It's called Heavens to Betsy and it's a duo band. It's her and her friend from high school, Tracy Sawyer. And they play their first show at, um, at girl night at the international pop underground convention in Olympia, which, um, paging through my own book to make sure that I get the date right, is um, the end of the summer of 1991. It all happens this summer, right? They're in D.C. all summer, and then they drive back to Oli to play this festival at the end of the summer. It's a quick question. If this was uh, a movement that was happening in the summer of 91, um, I mean, it's almost overshadowed historically in the music press by what happened at the end of the summer of 91, which is basically grunge happened. Grunge happened in terms of the music press and globally. Nirvana yeah, I mean, Nirvana's, Nirvana like hits it big at the end of 91, absolutely. And there's connections between Nirvana and Bikini Kill, of course. Like, they're close friends in Olympia, basically. And in fact, um, Bikini Kill opened for Nirvana in Seattle at a Halloween show in 1991. And that the title Smells Like Teen Spirit rather famously came from a, a drunken night with uh, with Kurt and, and uh, Kathleen, right? Yeah, Kathleen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you can finish this. No, story. no, you Sorry. you please, please. You no, tell just the story. Kathleen spray painted Kurt smells like Teen Spirit on on the wall of Kurt's apartment. Um, so that's where that that's where that line comes from. Um, no, perfect. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so how do we get from there to the first album? Um, I'm gonna go to you, Ben, because I know you do a, an amazing amount of research, and we're gonna get some proper data and then i'm going to sort of go over to for opinions on the album and whatnot from sheree uh, uh, and fliss at some point i'll, I'll speak to nick but he, yeah, he's sort right. of just there um so ben um so we've got this movement there's a summer of night there's a summer of 91 there are seminars and meetings and, and whatnot it's actually something uh official semi-official um, how does this become slater kinney's first album well, as Sarah mentioned, um, Corin Tucker uh, was in one of those pioneering bands, Heavens to Betsy, one of the, the original Riot Girl bands coming out of Olympia, Washington. Olympia is the home of Evergreen State College. That's sort of important for this whole story. A lot of the, uh, the members of these various bands were students there or at least hanging around campus. Um, and so Heavens to Betsy was uh, gaining some uh, renown just locally. Uh, as part of this whole riot girl scene. Uh, meanwhile, a young uh, Carrie Brownstein was at a different college, Western Washington University, which was a bit further north up by the Canadian border. And uh, she was getting obsessed with all of this music that was coming out. Heavens to Betsy, I think, had an EP out that you know she was listening to. And there was this concert in the, in the fall of 92. Bikini Kill was supposed to be the headliner. They had to cancel. Um, but Heavens to Betsy still showed up. 
as did Mecha Normal, which was this band out of uh, Vancouver that was influential on the scene. And, um, you know, Carrie Brownstein was just enthralled by the performance uh, by Heavens to Betsy, approached her after the show and said, you know, can, can I find out more about the Riot Girl scene? And Corin Tucker pulled out her notebook and, and got Carrie's address. And the way Carrie tells it, that was the moment when she knew she had to she had to leave that school she was at and transfer to Evergreen State so she could be in Olympia where all the action was happening. Um, and it was basically kind of the pull of Corin in particular that brought her to Olympia. In Olympia, you know, Carrie starts her own band. You had to start a band if you if you were there or several bands. Um, and Excuse Thirteen was the name of uh, Carrie's band. Um, and 17? this was oh, Excuse Seventeen. <laughs> I Thank corrected you Ben. Thank I you. Corrected, I'm not going to say anything else 13? for the rest of the episode. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So, so Ben, so you were saying that um, well, there's, there's basically this. There's a movement, and it's a very localized movement. You know, this is the hotbed. This is where things are happening. Right, and it, it's it's this it's this hotbed for sure where bands are interacting and they're they're trying, you know, they're they're mixing and matching a lot with their band members, and so it is. Very typical, I think, for bands to just say, "Okay, let's let's try this new side project." And so, you know, Corin and Carrie uh, said, "Let's let's try our own side project. Let's call it Slater Kinney, which is just the name of this road near their practice space." Um, you know, they, clearly they 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 weren't really being very ambitious. They're you know, this was just a side project. This wasn't even their main band for either of them. And then they both end up in Australia because they have a pen pal. And Stephen O'Neill, who uh, who was with the with this indie band out of Sydney uh, called the Canaines, who just invited them to come over, and they said sure. So they end up hanging out, just crashing in his uh, living room and writing songs, hooking up with a drummer, an Australian drummer named Laura McFarlane, who had her own zine at the time. And uh, you know that that first Slater Kinney album comes together, recorded in Melbourne on the fly, very little. Uh, practice or rehearsal of any kind they just kind of were like let's get these tracks down we don't you know this is just a kind of a, a one-off thing as far as they were concerned and we have this amazing document of their debut album yeah absolutely um if there's ever a word that dates a time and it's not we're talking about a feminist movement we're not talking about grunge the word pen pal just totally dated when that happened. I was like, oh yeah, pen pals. Um, okay, let's actually move on to the actual album. Um, and because we've been talking for a while and we haven't talked about any music. Uh, Cherie and Fliss, either of you can go first. I don't really mind. Um, this is a short, punchy, raw. For me, it's probably not their best, but it's it's a great statement out of the out of the door, right? Um, Cherie, Fliss, I don't care who goes first. Yeah, I think it sounds like um, a band forming, doesn't it? It sounds like two guitarists just having fun together. It sounds from that era and that movement. It, it, I feel like it was, yeah, you can tell it's hu hugely influenced by that earlier movement. Um, and the track sold out. It's so fierce and in your face. A, a lot of the reviews said it's quite monotone, but I totally don't get that. It's loud and brash and just sounds like they were having fun and enjoying themselves. Um, and yeah, it does sound a lot different to than what they created, but everyone starts somewhere and what a great start. For sure. Um, Cherie? 
Yeah, it's funny we were talking about Nirvana beforehand as well, because that pops up throughout a few of the records. Um, Mm -hmm. But I love the idea that, you know, we have to say goodbye to Kurt Cobain in the spring of 1994. And then his projection of like the future of music being with women exists in records like this. And I guess I should caveat and that I was very young when this album came out. So for me, and this will probably be similar, like we came in at maybe a later point, but then you go back and you discover this like, you know, discography of stuff before. And certainly as the two of us like playing in a band, it was very raw when we started and it was very angry. And I just hear that in these tracks, like a real man I I love so much. I think it's so yeah. the delivery mm. of that line from Corin is just brilliant. And I think we we liked that as well. I like the idea of making people feel uncomfortable and putting stuff out there that kind of is tense and awkward and makes people think about perceptions that they've not heard in kind of traditional loud music before. No, I think that's absolutely, I mean, and there was, there was a lot of pigeonhole in that had been happening. Uh, I mentioned earlier on bands like uh, the Lunatics and also Babes in Toyland, who had been putting out stuff at the sort of the turn of the decade, but they all got pigeonholed. Girl punk, uh, or oh, there's, there's the boy punk bands, and then there's the girl punk bands, and they're, they're sort of over here. Um, I had no idea Sleeta Kinney existed for a long time. Um, and I think it's because when their first two albums came out, the UK indie music scene had sort of moved on a bit. Not as in moved on to something better, but moved on. We'd done our American bit with grunge. We'd had that fun. Britpop sort of coming around the corner. Everyone's listening to acid jazz for one summer. Um, but the, the American guitar bands, even though that's exactly what I would have liked, just it didn't get played. Didn't get played anywhere. People were looking, Blur was releasing stuff. Uh, Oasis were coming coming down the road. You know, there was, the, the, the British music press gets very distracted by shiny things. Uh, was and, PJ Harvey not popular in the UK no, at that point? absolutely, she was. But she felt like she what she was doing was very much on her own. There wasn't really anything else like, cause I remember when I first heard PJ Harvey, which was the debut album, I, I was blown away by it. But I don't remember anything else. And I think it was because it seemed like there was nothing else like it at the time. Mm that made that album so powerful. Um, but also with what Cherie was saying about having been probably too young to be aware of these albums at the time, I don't think that they were on the radar at all in the UK at this point. So yeah, I think, and actually so I, think, I hadn't thought about that until you made your point because I was definitely sidelined by Elastica and Sleeper at that point. So I was probably doing <laughs> yeah. that and not being angry with Corin and Carrie, which I probably should have been doing, but I was just <laughs> lusting after Justine Frischman, if I'm honest. <laughs> Uh, but but also, I mean, as a, uh, the the entire media scene in the UK, for example, in the mid nineties, were there were magazines like oh god, loaded and whatnot. It was it was Ladettes and Britpop. This was this was the narrative that was going out. And then when there was when the media did go, oh yeah, uh, Spice Girls, Girl Power, and it's just like there's other stuff happening. But the UK media wasn't focused on that for a significant amount of time. It would take in US stuff in waves. And then shove it out. And, and Nick's right. PJ Harvey was doing stuff. I mean, Drive was what, like 92, I think? Yeah, yeah, yeah this, something um, like that. Yeah. But definitely in isolation. So like for me, I, I'm much later. I, I come in much later and sort of, sort of come back. Um, okay. Well, well if I can say one, on. other, Sorry. one yes, other thing is course. just we have to think about labels here because the first two albums come out on Chainsaw, which is a really small label. And um, they did a lot of amazing music, but 
it was a super DIY underground label. They didn't start recording for Kill Rock Stars until Dig Me Out. And so there's probably a distribution issue as well about what really makes it over into the UK record stores, to be honest. Well, even in the US, I, I, I don't think I don't think that Slater Kenny was really on people's radar until. I mean, the, they were uh, on mine. But well, yes, <laughs> I, I was. <laughs> well, Sorry, I was but you have your, your, you know, frontline view that you had, um, you know, but for for the rest of us. Um, yeah, I, I would say Dig Me Out is when they became kind of nationally known. Um, so, yeah, those those first two albums were. Um, for the cognoscenti, let's say, um, until they moved to Kill Rock Stars. Um, I, I think, I mean, yeah, obviously it may not have been distributed in UK record stores. Uh, John Peel was probably playing it, and I probably heard it on John Peel, but I wasn't paying attention. Yeah, abs- and my local indie disco, indie night, alternative club night, wasn't playing it either. And so, yeah, it just sort of washed me by for, for quite some time. We're going to move on. Because of time, um, we'll have plenty of time. To, we haven't even got to, to dig me out yet because we've got to go through Call the Doctor. Um, their second one, which was a year later. Is that right, Ben? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're back home and um, Call the Doctor, yeah, comes out in 96. And I mean, I really think of this album as where they they're figure out their, their formula in, in a good way. I mean, um, they also... I think around this time, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, um, they put their their old bands behind them and they're focusing on Slater Kennedy. This is their band now. Um, yeah. And uh, so it, it's fascinating. I mean, just right off the bat, I mean, that that first uh, track, the title track, I mean, we get their voices kind of talking past each other. And that is the sound of Slater Kennedy, as far as I'm concerned. And they, they you know, they, they took their first album to work it all out, but it's, it's there and, it, you know, even though they've had lots of transformations since then, that is the core to it. And, you know, it's something that Carrie has described as a single sonic sound with two guitars, two conversations. I like the way she says that it's two conversations, not one. They're not just sort of like, it's not some sort of little call and response thing they're doing. They're often like really talking past each other and creating this really fascinating tension. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, th- this, this was, you know, the album where, Slater Kinney, as we know it, I would say, you know, really comes to fruition. Yeah. I mean, for me, this is, this is when I know the dueling vocalist type thing, which has been done a lot since. There, and there, there have been, I know, you could go from as disparate as the Libertines to Wolf Parade with two different vocal styles shouting and taking turns. But this is one of, this is probably the first time I've noticed it looking back. Um, so there's, and, and what, I mean, we've got, I want to be your Joey Ramone. I mean, really good, but half another half an hour album. Is this it's another sub 30 minutes? I'm a big fan of the sub 30 minutes. I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> um, Sarah, um, you said this was still on the same label. Um, was it just a matter of getting back in the studio and, and churning out another one? Do you think, or was it, let's make our first proper album? I, I hear that. I'm trying to think through the question to see if I have any store of knowledge that can address it. But or I even just your I opinion. Do. I mean. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that like, as we were saying, um, I think it was Cherie who referred really helpfully to this, um, this fact that like in Olympia, you know, you could have a band. Um, or maybe this was Ben, I don't remember. In Olympia, like you would just have a side project, you would play with whoever that would be a band. There was a quote, a wonderful quote someone gave me from my book that in Olympia, a band is any song you ever played with anybody even once. 
Right. This reels it. And, you know, this is happening on the musical side. It's happening on the zine side, too. Like people will make their own zines and then they'll go travel for a weekend and like make a, a, a friend zine with the person that they're visiting. And, and it's the, the constant going back and forth and, and bringing other people on on a project is very much part of the, the Olympia aesthetic and the, the ethos of like DIY and just like making everything all the time and not being too precious about it. So it seems really clear as has already been said that the first album's part of that. And then the second album, as you guys said, it's absolutely a situation where they're like, okay, this is the band now. All right, we're doing this. What, like what happens if we actually like do this on purpose with the idea of it being a real thing and, and you get called a doctor. Um, as far as I know, that's the, their first tour as for Call the Doctor, I don't think they toured on the self-titled um, because I'm pretty sure I would have been there if they had. Um, but they toured, so they toured on Call the Doctor, and that was that was sort of their um, their introduction to a wider audience in the U.S. I think awesome, thank you. Um, so yeah, I mean, this, again, like I say, it's short and it's punchy. Uh, long-term listeners to the pod know where I stand on long albums, long songs, and short songs. I will surprise you in the next episode, Nick. I will surprise you. Um, Fliss, you, you, you said that the last album was fierce. Uh, it, you know, some people have described it as monotone, but you didn't hear that at all. Um, was this al- is this album like a step in a, uh, in a different direction for you? Is it a step up? Is it more of the same? Like, how, where, where, where do you think they're going? Um, it's definitely more full sounding, of course. And I think Ben and Sarah kind of rounded up really nicely. The guitars, um, they've just found their sound, I think. They've really locked in together. Call the Doctor was never, obviously Cherie said we found Slater Kinney, Slater Kinney at a different time in our lives because we were a bit younger here. But obviously we went back straight away. And Call the Doctor was one album that I never sat with for that long. Um, Also, Cherie was... Going out with, you don't mind me saying this, but at the time she she was going out with a guy and his band, who I didn't like that much, and his band was called Call the Doctor, and it just completely put me off. So I never really sat with it for that long. But um, obviously I've listened to it since. Um, and yeah, it's great. It's, it's full of noise. I like it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I, I do find it hard to separate the first two albums in terms of, they're, they're, they're ones. It's like it, it's more of the same, but better. Like here's here's the rough cut. Here's the studio cut. But it's not. They have changes of sounds later that I think are more pronounced. Oh, of course. But yeah. for me, the first two albums they just sit together as a one-two piece. Um, Cherie, uh, I'm not going to ask you about the band. Call the doctor. No, please um, I'm don't. I'm going to ask you more about this album. Um, so I mean. It has, it, hasn't sat that well with Fliss originally. She didn't spend that as much time with it. Was Is this the type of Slater Kinney that appealed to you or are we going to see that later? Yeah, I think it's getting there. Like when I met the aforementioned guy at the band, I wasn't like, oh yeah, ding, ding, my favourite Slater Kinney album. I was like, eh. um, uh, but <laughs> I do, I do love this record and I think there are some amazing tracks on there. You mentioned I want to be your Joey Ramone. And for me, it's it's just that ambition as well. And just that, and I'll probably name drop Pete Townsend windmills like so much in this, but they really strike out with a very clear goal of like, we want to be those revered rock icons. And it's totally cool for us as women to want that space. So the idea of talking about, you know, pictures on your bedroom wall and 
I just love that because that became they became the women on our bedroom walls as well. And um, yeah, that was really special. And um, I think Ben made a lovely point about, yeah, them kind of interlocking. And there was a great uh, interview with Carrie in Rolling Stone where she talks about how she felt once they were doing those vocals, it felt like they fused together and there was like a lightning bolt between the two of them. And I just find that so powerful. And you really hear that. And that only kind of gets brighter with the rest of the discography. Um, thank you. Perf- um, so what, we're, we're currently mid-90s, was it? Mm-hmm. I, sort of got, I lost my own notes, 94, 95? Yeah, that was, that was 96, um, Call the Doctor. Right? They've took, so they've gone on their first tour, as, as Sarah said. They're sort of going in a direction. Um, and that direction is moving straight on to one of their, I'm sorry, one of their best albums. Like we, I know we've got other things to talk about, but spoiler, this is one of my top two. Uh, we're moving into Dig Me Out, which is brilliant from start to finish we've got dig me out one more hour little baby there's there's not a single moment on this album that i could pick apart or would want to pick apart and often see this see sheree is going oh my god i'm agreeing with you and usually usually guests stare at me with some incredulous opinion about some band nick likes no that this was fucking brilliant absolutely brilliant i've got nothing else to say People talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, for for those of us, yeah, uh, unlike Sarah, who who was paying attention from the beginning. I mean, this is this is when everybody had to pay attention to Sleater Kinney, um, and um, I, I sort of my personal experience uh, with them kind of starts around this time because I was actually living overseas in the mid '90s for a couple of years, so I felt kind of disconnected from the like, what are the you know what are the new you know cool American bands. And I just have this memory of, you know, 1997, I, you know, it, it did, it did get a lot of critical acclaim. And I'm like, all right, I'll, let's, let's try this out. I just, I have this distinct memory of putting in that CD and just listening to that title track and being like, holy shit, this is really good. Because <laughs> you get, you get, you get the, you get, um, you get Janet Weiss right away too, their drummer coming in. Um, as this really essential component. I mean, you know, those first two albums with Laura McFarlane are fine, but once Janet Weiss comes in as the, their drummer, who they would keep for well, 22-ish years, <laughs> um, that is just like an amazing kind of, um, you know, partnership, basically. And you hear it right away. I mean, you just like that title track comes in, you, you know, you hear Carrie's opening riff, which is brilliant. You hear that just wallop of drums from Janet and then Corin's voice. And, and like, I was just in right away from that. I was, and this was, you know, a band that I just, you know, got a little obsessed with at that point. Um, perfect. Um, so obviously, um, again, I had, I had no idea of them at the time. Um, it was 97. There was, I was listening to probably spiritualized and Radiohead as you know, English kids tended to do at that time. Um, Cherie, we're going to do a different order, order this time, just mainly because you looked like this was also one of your favourite albums. So I'm going straight to you yeah. because, because people rarely agree with me. You're so right, though. You set it up yes! completely. <laughs> my goodness. Yeah, it's probably one of my favourite records of all time. Um, it's just, as Ben said, honestly, I get shivers even thinking about that first guitar riff. It's impossible for me to not feel that in my bones. We, um, Fliss and I went to see them for the reunion tour, you know, fast forwarding a lot in at the roundhouse. 
And it's an old track and they've got a lot of stuff to get through. And I didn't think they'd play it. And it was the last song of the set in the encore. And I just mm. went mental. I was just so really happy. I, I love it to pieces. It's so it's angry. Um, but there's pop and that's the thing. And I think we'll head into that a bit more. But for me, it's that blissful intersection, which I look for in all music where I want a really angry guitar. And then I want kind of snarling pop lyrics. And yeah, this just hit that for me. Um, uh, yeah. And, and obviously I, I talked about it a bit in the intro, but the cover, which I did not realize was a homage to the kinks was just the coolest because, you know, years to come, I get my second, third guitar. And I also pick a guitar with really lovely lipstick pickups. And yeah, so arguably for me, Corin's guitar on that, you know, record sleeve is, is even better. Sorry, kinks fans. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right. There is that sort of mix between, sort of fears and and there's hooks you know there are there's definitely hooks in there as well that sort of stay with you as you as you're sort of going along um sarah um as far as I, i'm going to ask you something and you'll go uh let me just check um <laughs> but as far as, as less so much factual you know i don't I, maybe they played something in november but in terms of you and the music at this time how was the scene for you you know, was there now a burgeoning, I'm going to use the word riot girl because it's, was there this burgeoning feminist punk scene? Um, or or was were Slita Kinney now the only sort of torchbearers? You know, was there other stuff going on? That's a long-winded question. Um, can I answer your question sideways slash Absolutely. not answer Please it? do. <laughs> um, because here's what I want to say about Dig Me Out in the context of the first three albums as a unit. And this does have to do with Riot Girl, So it is getting to your question, but not necessarily in a like scene history way. Um, Dig Me Out. Like that's the first, that's the beginning of this album. Um, and what are you digging out from? You go back and you listen to the first two albums and you hear, I mean, I really want to propose that there's this sort of like Persephone up from the underworld, um, not the same as underground up from the underworld arc happening in the first three albums or the first, the first two, if you listen to them, they're super sludgy, super low. And there's so much dinosaur junior happening here. Like Corin is detuned so, so low. It's so growly. And like the, the, you know, the treble is just like non-existent in a lot of these guitar parts and the songs also they're all about like like where desire comes up in the songs the the singer is always like i don't want this i don't want that like there's this like absolutely like oppositional like fighting against something that you're being told you want and you don't want okay and by the second album there's this sort of like sardonic like don't you want me you know what your desire is fucked up and I'm going to like sarcastically like throw it back at you thing. The third one is where this sort of comes together. Like I honestly, I mean, I'm thinking about this as this like, like dialectical spiral up through like punk rock greatness in that like comes surfaces in dig me out where like it's a, suddenly it's about the music and like the music can hold it all. So now when there's a song that's about how fucked up heteronormative relations are, it's in the context of this like Springsteen-y like, Johnny, let's hit the road. You know, you get it and not what you want and you get in the car and like the singer is like clearly like going to crash her and her boyfriend like in a fiery crash. She's driving 80, 95, maybe more like and that like you're accessing the canon of rock. You're accessing the history of rock mythology instead of fighting this and resisting that. Like, in fact, like that comes all together in this core and combusts into like a redo of rock. 
Um, and that I think is also like, you know, Riot Girl. To get back to your question, was oh, I, based- might just, I might just record a new question and edit it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so okay, then I'll ask it and I'll, 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 I'll pivot in a way that doesn't require the old question. Riot Girl at its best was it was this sort of time limited thing about what it's like to be a female adolescent in a patriarchy and to like fight against messages of what you're expected to do, fight to not fight against what it means to not want the things you're told to want. But like, you can't live that way for the rest of your life. Like you go through that, you, you, you do a sort of like purging or purifying of, of yourself. And then you come out in this other way, ready to make this new thing. And that's why I get so moved when I hear dig me out, because you really do feel like you're bursting out into the sunlight. You can hear, I mean, I'm going to suggest that like, when you go in and, and edit this podcast, it would be really cool to listen to the first five seconds of each of the first three albums because the first two are very sludgy, very low, very like grumbly. And then all of a sudden it's all treble at the It's like octaves above where it started. Boom. Exactly. You know, I I get a goosebumps. This is a freaking great record. You know, what what one thing I just wanted to say too, I mean, I I I've sort of lived with this album since 1997. And it reveals itself in different ways, you know, uh, over time. I didn't really know much about the band or their history, but, you know, it, it all came out uh, eventually that, you know, the Corin and Carrie had dated and, and uh, a lot of the lyrics reflect their kind of short relationship and the breakup. And it's, it's fascinating reading Carrie's memoir, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, because she talks about some of the songs on Dig Me Out, not even realizing at the time that, Corin was singing about her. I mean, it's like, you yeah. know, one more hour. Oh, you've got the darkest eyes. Or Jenny, do you see her face when she's gone? No, it, it's heartbreaking. I mean, th- it? those, yeah, that's that's about heartbreak. And and it was very personal. And, and yet, you know, that's just sort of one facet of all of this that, you know, that that works for me. I mean, you have kind of heartbreak, heartbreak kind of lurking behind these songs, and it just adds to that emotional impact. I mean, maybe, I mean, they, they already point, it was already pointed out that they, they had, I thought we had two conversations. Maybe that one conversation, they'd have realized that they were singing about each other, right? <laughs> maybe that was the problem. Who, who knows? Um, does anybody else have anything more to say on, on, on Dig Me Out before we move on? Um, just that it was obviously, I don't know if it's been brought up, obviously, but it was the, you know, introduction of Janet, who became an essential part of the band's sound and every, Every instrument was, um, you know, more not, not no one instrument was more important than the other, and they each had that. You know, she made melodies with her drums, and it starts here. It just gets progressively better, obviously, as the albums go on. But wow, she really brought something special to this band. Yeah, totally. Um, mental note: Do not move on without talking about the drums when you have a drummer on the pod. <laughs> I don't know I don't know much about drumming, but all I know is, you know, Janet's Janet was so inspirational to me. Perfect. Now awesome, thank you. Um so last time last time Ben was on, Ben came on and we, we did two episodes on Yola Tango. One of the other guests was Jeffrey Lewis, uh singer songwriter Jeffrey Lewis. And we got to a point midway through Yola Tango's career after Ben had talked about his one of his favorite albums for about five, six minutes, where where Jeffrey basically said, this is where things went wrong because bands stopped rocking 
and started sounding nice and less rocky and a bit more polished and a bit nicer. Um, we're moving into hot rock, which for me, I really struggled with. And it fits into what Jeffrey Lewis was saying about how some bands sort of get to the midpoint. They're rocking, rocking, rocking. And then there's this sort of, you're still doing good stuff. And you're, you're entitled, you're obviously you're allowed, you're allowed to change. It's your band. But it left me cold. I really struggled. I listened really? to it twice. Oh. And I was just like, ah. Well, you know, it's uh, interesting you bring up Yola Tango because there is a connection here. Um, oh, I know. I'm letting you do it. Okay. <laughs> the producer, so, right? yeah, you, you have these first three albums. They're, they're sort of very, very punky, you know, albums and sort of searing albums. And they do kind of take a step back from that. But this this is like what they do over their whole career. It's like, well, let's subvert people's expectations a little bit. After Dig Me Out, you know, people were expecting another album like that. Instead, they decide to uh, bring in a different producer. And that producer is Roger Mutno. And Roger Mutno, they liked because he had worked with Yola Tango. He had uh, produced I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One, my favorite Yola Tango album. They liked what he did there. And they said, okay, well, let's try this. It'll bring, it'll bring something new to our sound. And, um, and it works. I mean, again, you know, maybe Jeffrey Lewis isn't a, as much of a fan of it just because it is, it is a kind of a, a change of gears uh, from what they were doing before. But, um, you know, I, I really like it. I mean, I, again, like at the time, I think I was expecting another Dig Me Out and I didn't get it. But, you know, it kind of works its magic on you. I really think that it is actually one of their strongest albums. I think Sarah agrees with me. Um, there's, there's just, um, and people are disagreeing with me again. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so, I mean, I just love, you know, burn, don't freeze. Um, wonderful. And again, that's sort of like the doomed relationship where they're, where they're, you know, giving these different perspectives, their different voices, uh, a song like get up. I, I love it. I mean, they're, they're doing a little sort of Kim Gordon, uh, homage in that one, I guess it sounds very sonic youthy, um, but very kind of soul searching and meditative. The Size of Our Love, Ugh. maybe the saddest, saddest song that they've ever done. I love that uh, song. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they end with the sort of jazzy thing, a quarter to three. It, it's just it's just very it's varied in a way that the first three albums aren't. And I, I just love that at that point in their career, they're like, yeah, let's let's just mix it up a little bit. Try a different sound. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely more accomplished I'm, I'm, for sure. Like I say, I mean, it left me totally cold. So I'm going to move on to other people immediately before I, I get more people start to dislike me. Uh, Nick, you've been quite quiet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I do really like this one. And it gives me great pleasure to say that when you've just announced it's the one that left you cold. Um, but I mean, the songs I liked in particular, I think probably mostly be mentioned already. I mean, the size of our love is, is their most Yola Tango moment, probably. Uh, I really like Band from the End of the World as well. Um, yeah, I think it's a great album. And that's all I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've got a question, actually. This is a question for, I mean, mainly for uh, Fliss and Cherie. Music, it's about music in general. Um, and I'm going to come on to this in the next episode as well. Producers. I mean, here we've got, a, they've, they've gone, they found a producer who's done stuff they like, who has come in and they've made their most Yola Tengo type album. Um, how often do you think it is that the band drives that process? Or is it a matter of, hey, producer, you, you have a sound. Come in and give us that sound. I mean, do you think how, how much of that was them when they're recording and how much of it was uh, Mutino? 
I think it'd be interesting to ask that question when we talk about the centre won't hold as well. Yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> uh, oh, and, and the woods. That's yes, when I'm bringing of it back. Course. The woods. Yeah, yeah because it's a really good point on uh, multiple levels for different records. Um, yeah, I don't, I get it. I guess I did get some of those references. So that has worked in a way, hasn't it? And, and we'll come on to like the Flaming Lips moment as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Fliss, have you had experiences? Because you, with some remixes and stuff for the Gales, obviously you've done a bit of that. And I guess it's interesting oh, to see. Spoiler alert. Spoil- <laughs> I'm not giving the big names away, but it's, but it's interesting you, you, when you... Oh, you, you, did talk, you did talk about her ex-boyfriend. I mean, this is a, this is a minor comeback. Yeah, it's fine. Professional. Um, yeah, I just think yeah. it's interesting sort of giving the reins over to your sound, to someone else who then might manipulate that in a different way that you hadn't seen before. Uh, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. People are so frightened of change, aren't they? But like when I just, I can feel that they just wanted to go somewhere else after, you know, after a while. And, and I kind of thought that they might, I didn't think that the hot rock was immediate for me, but now I, after, you know, years of listening to it, I adore it, but it is totally different. Um, it's more relaxed. It's kind of gloomy. Um, and uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to go in different directions. I've never really worked with a producer like that, so I'm not sure not sure how that really works, but they must have you know they're they are you know they 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 know what they want to do. I just think they just wanted a bit of change, maybe yeah, different I think direction. I think sometimes some producers might turn up and go, "Okay, what do you want?" and they'll 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 meet in the middle. And some producers, I think, turn up and go, here's my bag of tricks. <laughs> I'm going to turn this one up. I'm going to do this. And now you sound like X person. Sarah, hello. Um, while Ben was talking, you looked like you agreed with him. Everyone agrees. I'm aware. I'm totally aware that I'm, I'm the outlier on this. Um, this change of sound. Um, I mean, what did, I mean, obviously, what did it do for you? But also, what do you think it did for the band in terms of a band growing who had become this uh, punky uh, thing, thing. Fuck it. Ben's a linguist. This punky thing, <laughs> and now they're releasing something that's not a punky thing, right? Um, you know, I honestly, think that, I'm usually better than this. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Dig me out is. Dig Me Out is like pure rock. I remember when it came out that people were just like, oh, here's like the purest rock and roll I've ever heard. And like it's at what's so amazing. And I'm, I'm this is all in like heavy, heavy scare quotes. This is the purest rock and roll we've ever heard. And it's really incredible because it's girls and like girls can rock. Like I swear, th- those of you who are like, oh, I was five when this came out. You don't know how sexist the 90s were about rock. But it really was like, oh. You know, these girls and they're loud and they sound good and they like keep a beat and, and they play all the instruments. Um, so that was a little bit of the the like dig me out thing. And what I love is that they didn't rest on that laurel at all. But the you know, what I hear in it's it's so interesting to hear you guys talking about the hot rock is like, oh, they're pulling back from something or there's something gentler happening. I just hear it as like there's more complexity, there's more assurance, there's more range, there's like like something has been achieved with dig me out a sense of power a sense of like okay we can we can do anything and so why would you stop at, at one thing um the the sort of counterpoint between the voices between the um between the guitars gets so much more um 
deep and nuanced on the hot rock. Honestly, this is um, in many ways, this is one of my favorite albums. I was uh, the year that it came out, I was touring a lot with uh, a band of my own. And so this was on heavy rotation in the car. And it's some of the songs are really about being in a band and about why are you in a band? Nobody mentioned the end of you. I, you know, other, in addition to the fact that she rhymes Athena with Mina, um, bless me with Athena, there's no Mina, she's the best. So, you know, this idea of like band as, as like Odyssey and like feminist punk musician as Ulysses, which I just so love, but also this idea of like, that's going to be constant through so many of their later albums. Like there are going to be sirens of pulling you away from why you're doing this. And you're going to have to keep coming back to what it's really about for you. And so for me as a musician and as a writer, I always really appreciated when that came out in a, like in a really determined way. Yeah. I mean, maybe that is it. I mean, people go, Oh, look, Primal Scream changed their sound after two, every two albums. Radiohead. Oh, they got big and rocky. They, they decided to electronic. And then maybe it's a well. Why are why are the girls doing it? Um, the, if the boys can get away with it, why, you know, in that sort of thing, the music press would hold up your radio heads and your primal screams for changing their sound. And maybe, yeah, maybe questioning this change of sound was, you know, everyone, should, you know, I just didn't like it. Anyway, moving on, <laughs> moving on. Um, the final episode, the final album we're going to talk about on this one is all hands on the bad one i'm gonna go to fliss first uh because you did the introduction Mm -hmm. um which people will have already heard um i mean for me this is a companion album to hot rock um there's sort we've got the first three they've got these two and then we move off into a different direction um had you were you into uh slater kinney at this by this point uh yes yeah, I was, yeah. Um, I got into them actually through um, my partner at the time. He um, was an inline skater, like a, you know, extreme sports skater. And he would always watch um, these skate videos and I would watch them with him. And they had amazing soundtracks. And it's where I heard like all of the music from this, well, not from this era, but previously, um, you know, Bikini Kill, um, all of that. And Sleater Kinney, it was the first time I'd heard them through these skate videos. And um, yeah, Youth Decay was the first song I'd ever heard. I was immediately just totally involved. I'd already kind of thought about, you know, doing, doing some music, wanting to play. And I just fell in love with the drums um, all over the album. I just absolutely adore the album. It has such a place in my heart because it was where I discovered so many other things through this. Um, Yeah, I talk about it all in my intro, so I don't want to repeat myself, but um, yeah, it was immediate. So yeah, and I think with most people, with most bands, the one that gets you in yeah, this wherever is my that, entry. Wherever that yeah. is, is your one. It was my entry point, and it's yeah, it just holds so much for me because it's how it made me want to be in a band. It's why I became a drummer, and um, yeah, it really means so much to me. And all of the songs, I yeah, I just love them all. They're they're so catchy. There's hooks galore. Um, the voices are incredible. The drums are just so rhythmic and all over the shop. It, yeah big influence on me totally um also i mean last time last time you were on we had a brief conversation at the end of that about gatekeeping 
you know, uh, gatekeepers of music, you know, uh, particularly in the fact of you being in the Nightingales and and fans sort of having this sort of, well, no, I, I choose. The professional <laughs> on this album is is a scathing takedown of the idea of gatekeepers you know, musically. You know, you can't listen to this, you can't do this, you can't do that. And it's yeah, absolutely amazing. True. Um, ben, do we still have Mutano? No, no, no. They, they, oh, that's uh, why I liked it. <laughs> no, it was just for the hot rock. Yeah, so it's interesting because, um, you know, um, all hands on the bad one, um, Carrie later called it a reset button because the band actually was going through some struggles a bit with the recording of um, Hot Rock and then the, the tour. Um, Carrie um, was in a lot of pain because of a, a back injury, I think. And so so this was sort of their reset button. And um, so they're back with John Goodmanson, who they had worked with before. And so it does kind of, in, in a way, kind of go back to the punk energy of of those earlier albums. Uh, yeah. Especially on youth decay. And one of my favorite uh, songs from the band, you're no rock and roll fun. I, I mean, it is such a great song. I, I just kind of imagine this like parallel universe where that's like a huge hit on the charts or whatever. It's like that should, you know, I want to live in that world where, you know, that's, that's a big hit, <laughs> but um, it's, just, I just find that perfect. And, but they're also, you know, you see they're, they're maturing as artists and it, it comes through in their lyrics, especially on, um, you know, uh, Ballad of the Lady Man and also Number One Must Have, where they're kind of looking back on their Riot Girl roots and looking at, you know, what's happened since then, what happened to those sort of feminist ideals. And, you know, Sarah Sarah could uh, expound on this for sure, because it, this is the time of, you know, like we were saying before, Spice Girls, Girl Power, this kind of commodified form of of, you know, what Riot Girl might have stood for back then and they're looking back and having this kind of critical reappraisal sarah i think you wrote a you wrote a, like a whole uh, review of this album i think when it came out so you have a lot I, more to say I about did, it i <laughs> did in fact and if you found it then you you're better googler than i am but I, I i do remember sort of pouring my my heart into that review when all hands on the bed one came out and being super moved by number one must have which to my mind is the best song on the album. And I want to point out that the, um, I just want to offer a slight refinement to what you were saying, because the, the sort of hard thing that's prompting this like reflection back on Riot Girl isn't so much like the Spice Girls or, you know, watered down versions of feminism, but literal violence against women. You know, she, the, the, this like Woodstock reunion concert had just happened. Oh, yeah. There were all these sexual assaults there. And that's what Corin is, is singing about where she sings, where will there always be concerts where women are raped, right? And then with the idea of like, sorry, I, my four-year-old is like, do you, I don't know if you can hear this. There's a bunch of like stomping going on. Um, okay. We'll I don't like it. Um, Adds texture. <laughs> right? Um, you know, but... I, I love that that's that's sort of the key that and also um, she talks in interviews about the fact that she wrote number one must have reflecting back on Riot Girl, having been asked to be part of this um, Riot Girl retrospective like roundtable discussion at the Experience Music Project. Um, that was one of the first attempts to sort of look back over what Riot Girl had been and, and gather oral histories about it. I found it super useful when I was writing my book to, to have these interviews have already been done. Um, and the question of like, everybody's supposed to be over it by then, right? By the late 90s, early 2000s, like we were all too grown up. We're all too cool to like care about something or get mad about things. And yet like 
when you actually take a second and look and you see that the same shit's still going on, you start to ask yourself like, well, well, how am I actually, what am I doing to change this or what am I doing to speak to it? And that's what I hear Corin doing in number one must have in a way that gives me goosebumps every single goddamn time. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, t- I'm desperately trying to think of, of some way to segue out of that, and I don't have one. <laughs> um, Cherie, Cherie, we have talked about first albums, and we have talked about um, the commodification of, uh, of the Riot Girl movement, and we've talked about violence towards women at concerts. You can choose any of those three. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably not going to pick the one you wanted to hone in on, but number three, um, yeah, I really felt that track as well, number one must have. And actually, I wrote a point in my notes about when we were talking about McCluskey on one of the previous mm-hmm. episodes, He um, Falcus makes quite a lot of quite forward-thinking comments and um, put-downs about the future. And, you know, I think it was a thing about plastic forks and mocking people about you know being more eco-friendly and I think to know that they recorded this album like 20 years ago and one of the lines is about you know the number one must is that we are safe and that's 20 years on and I don't want to get all emotional on here but you know there's lots we just haven't made as much progress as we should have and for me that's one of the the joys of Cita Kinney is that they they fly that fucking flag for the political is personal because they bring that stuff up and they do it in such a way that there is, you know, the hand claps and there's the new wave guitar vibes of the go-go's. So it lures you in, but then it's also like, here are some really hard facts that you need to know. And this is stuff that we, yeah, need to talk about. So it's, um, it's a great record. And yeah, as like a music journo, I love some of those scathing lines and Fliss and I had a good crack at doing similar in our own band. So yeah, I was a big fan of this record too. Also, um, the the humor. I mean, we're talking about some very serious topics, yeah. but it can On be just really side. funny. Like milk, yeah. milkshake yeah, and yeah, honey yeah. is just a funny song. Yeah. I mean, I, I just puts a smile on my face. Just the 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 picture they're painting of this kind of silly fling in Paris or whatever. I don't know. I, I just appreciate that too. They're they're not just this you know serious band talking about serious things, but they they can really do it all. Okay. On that note, we're probably gonna. Probably a good time to wrap up this episode. Now, we are not leaving Sator Kinney uh, in any way, shape, or form, and we will be returning um, to continue discussing similar themes and others in the next episode. Um, but this five albums in is a good time for us to move, to wrap up uh, this one. Um, Cherie, thank you ever so much thank for coming, coming on. Fliss, thank you ever so much. Thank you. Uh, ben, thanks for coming back. Always a pleasure. Sarah, it's been great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Nick. Cheers. And we'll, um, well, we'll, we'll all be back in the next episode. See you then. Bye. 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 Oh, my God, I rambled a lot. Jesus. You call them Sleater Kinney too, right? Like all those people who say David Bowie. It'll take years for me to unlearn the habit. And it doesn't help that when I was growing up, the regional dialect for Woodlouse was a Slater. But there you have it, Slater Kinney. Anyway, thank you for today's amazing roster of guests. We had Sarah Marcus, author of Girls to the Front, which quite apart from being the definitive book on the Riot Girl Revolution, 
is also an excellent study of feminism and young womanhood. It truly was an honour to have her on the show. We were also rejoined by the linguist and writer Ben Zimmer and both members of Violet Violet, Sharia Moore and the Nightingale's Fliss Kitson. You may have heard them both here before, but it was just brilliant having them both together. Thank you, everyone. But I'm not done yet. Thank you also to my vociferous co-host Ewan for chairing the discussion, cutting the show together and refraining from griping about Targo Margo. Thanks also to Jonathan Fisher for our excellent theme music. If you enjoyed the show, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash tempfans. And since Spotify don't want to sponsor us yet, we're looking to you for support. If that's asking too much, then just spread the word or leave us a review. It all helps. We'll be back next week for the concluding episode, bringing us right up to this year's new release, The Path of Wellness. Be sure not to miss it. Until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, but I want to be your Joey Ramone. <laughs>